You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you. Hey, if you didn't know, we started the 8 o'clock service again. Today was the first week we've done that. So I know you all don't care about that, but nonetheless... (laughs) We have, and I reminded them, you're here at 8 o'clock. Don't be all self-righteous thinking you're the really committed ones because you're here at 8. So do want to remind you that that's available if that appeals to you. So this afternoon, a bunch of folks are being baptized, and we often say on our staff, these summer baptism days, believers' baptism days, are some of our favorite days of the year. And the beauty is in the stories Uh, people, their lives, what God's doing in their lives, how their hearts have been drawn home to life in Christ. So pray for the folks being baptized this afternoon. Every one of them is a beautiful, unique story. I will tip my hand a little bit and say the ones that I find that I'm most moved by are frequently the people who are like in their 60s or 70s because there's some years and there's some stories to the story. And it's so beautiful the way we have the privilege of baptizing folks into their life in Christ. So pray for those folks who are being baptized. Okay, so you know the painting, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci? I'm guessing one way or another you've seen it, come across it, whether it was some postcard or something you saw on the internet or whatever it is. That painting was painted in 1498 by Leonardo da Vinci. It was painted as a fresco on the wall of a church in Milan, Italy. And some things have been learned over the years about the painting. One, there's a little bit of a challenge because that fresco and the wall, the composition of the concrete of that wall holds moisture. And so a painting on something that holds moisture when humidity kind of comes and goes is not great for the painting. So the painting has had some challenges with the moisture issue. Secondly, apparently Leonardo da Vinci liked to mix his own paints. So in mixing his own paints, he wanted to get certain colors that just generally weren't available. And so he made his own paints and he achieved beautiful dynamic color. But one of the problems was some of the paints that he mixed himself were not as durable and lasting as some other kinds. So when you put those two factors together, you have this incredible piece of artwork that is challenged by the moisture and the humidity and the fact that the paints were not as lasting. So over the years, the painting had been touched up, reworked. Different people would come in and try to touch it up. Some of them who really weren't artists some of them who didn't know back then who Leonardo da Vinci would be and who he would become. And it's like, well, we just got this painting on the wall here. And then for a period of time, it was shellacked over. And then it had all kinds of soot and stuff from candles and candlelight that had accumulated over the many, many years. So in 1977, a woman named Penine Barcelone who is an art historian and restorer, was commissioned to do a comprehensive redo to try to restore The Last Supper to its original condition. 
It took about 20 years to do this work. And she says, reading about it, that there were days where her whole team spent the whole day and what they accomplished was a postage stamp size batch of restoration. Okay, so what's the point? The point is trying to get back to the original. What did it really look like? What did da Vinci intend? What was being conveyed in the original? And over all the years, all kinds of pasted over versions came along with this. And she was commissioned to get it back to the original. So we're doing this series called Beholding Jesus. Since Jesus lived on earth, there have been so many books, movies, you name it, written about Jesus. So how do you know which ones really give us an accurate picture of Jesus? Some of them have all kinds of political agendas behind them, personal agendas, social agendas. Some people are angry at religion, write a book about Jesus. You know about the Da Vinci Code, all that kind of stuff. I mean, all kinds of stuff has been written. Well, how do we get back to behold the original Jesus? A little bit like trying to restore the painting of the Last Supper. So we're going to try to do our best. That's what our summer series is about. And we're looking into the scriptures to try to do our best to understand him. About eight months ago, I was reading a woman who is a theologian, and she remarked that something significant happened in her life of faith when she moved from believing to beholding Jesus. And I was quite struck by this idea. She says, yes, belief is the essential building block. Belief is coming to understand and then embracing, comprehending, saying yes to Jesus. But it's more of an intellectual thing. It's a creedal kind of thing. She said, what I have come to, which I am joyful about, is my believing has been what has now launched me into beholding. She's not dismissing the believing. You see it, right? But it's the believing that brought her to the place of marveling at Jesus. So this is no longer just an intellectual exercise of belief, creedal, but all of that has led her to beholding him. In my mind, it's a little bit like a rocket booster that helps a rocket lift off. The believing is helping us lift off, and the beholding is when the rocket booster can peel away and launch us into something even more beautiful as we ascend higher and higher and closer to God. So yes, the believing is essential. It's the building block of our faith. But if our belief is good and accurate, it's going to lead us to this devotional place of beholding Jesus, and that's what we're trying to do. All right, a little bit of context. I'm going to speak primarily out of Matthew chapter 9 this morning, but Matthew chapter 8 is important because Matthew chapter 8 comes before Matthew chapter 9. And it's like a flurry of healing in Matthew chapter 8. So Jesus is healing all these people, and it's like this flurry. It's like this furious flurry of healing in Matthew chapter 8. But there's a fascinating and powerful concentric circles aspect to the healings as we have it in Matthew. In Matthew 8, he, Jesus heals a leper, the most unclean, the most unwelcome, the most don't come near us outsider. And then after that is a centurion's son. That's like the next most unclean. That's this Roman godless pagan government. And then Jesus heals the centurion's son. Next after that is a woman who women were disregarded in the day, and it's Peter's mother-in-law. 
So what you're doing is you're seeing the heart of Jesus healing these people and reaching the most unclean and bringing us closer and closer and closer to home. Okay, so this is all happening around Capernaum, around Jesus' hometown, right up there on the Sea of Galilee. And then what happens is Jesus goes across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to Gadara. This, you may be familiar with the term. And he encounters the Gadarene, it's called the Gadarene demoniacs. It's demon-possessed men on, on the other side of the lake. It's important to note that the, quote, other side was not only a geographic other side, it was an ethnic and religious other side. Those people, and for goodness sakes, those people on the other side were pig farmers. It doesn't get any dirtier in the Jewish mindset than that. So we've got this healing flurry in chapter 8 of the people who were the outsiders, and then Jesus goes over to those pig farmers and then he heals over there. Then he gets back in a boat to come back to Capernaum. And that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 9. So when he says he got in a boat and crossed over, this is from Gadara back to Capernaum. Jesus got into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. On seeing this, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said, why do you harbor evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick, excuse me, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The scene is remarkable. If you were here last week or you joined online one way or another, you heard Dan Yoon talk about Jesus and the crowds. Crowds are building everywhere. Jesus can't go out anywhere except that he's mobbed by crowds. By now, this is all well underway. So Jesus had gone over to Gadara. He's back to Capernaum. Jesus is back, Jesus is back, Jesus is back. And so the crowds gather again. This scene where Jesus heals this man is the same one that Luke depicts with more detail when this guy's friends bring him and the crowd is so thick they can't get to Jesus. So they go up on the roof of the house, they remove the ceiling tiles and they let the guy down on ropes and put him in front of Jesus. Same scene. So you've got this healing breaking out everywhere. All right, a couple words that become very important here. The Greek word for healing is sozo. That's the way you would say it in English. This word means a lot. It means to be healed physically. It means to be forgiven, made whole, restored, and given the full wholeness that we're intended to have. It also means saved or salvation. So when you see those words in the Gospels, all of those words, restored, forgiven, reconciled, saved, it's the same sozo word. So Jesus goes around healing people. He is sozoing people all over the place. Another massively important word in the Bible is a Hebrew word, and the word is shalom. This one may be more familiar to you. Shalom is this Hebrew word that means a comprehensive wholeness. There is a complete peace and a comprehensive wholeness. In other words, that's the goal, that we human beings are given this complete peace and comprehensive wholeness. 
One of the most significant aspects of that would be that we are restored to a proper relationship with the God who made us. That would be an essential piece. There's more to it than just that, but that would be an essential piece. So when Jesus, bear with me, sozos, he does it to lead to shalom. This full restoration of us human beings in our relationship with God. All right, to give a little bit more depiction of Jesus as the healer, that's the main point we're speaking about today, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering acute pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Do you note the comprehensive nature of the healing? He's healing all kinds of things. But the healing comes very connected to the fact that he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He is preaching and teaching people about this kingdom of God. What it means to have a life in a restored relationship when God is king of our lives. He's preaching and teaching about that. And then he's doing this healing as one expression of what happens in this kingdom. Because God is the king of it, lives are healed, made whole, restored. So he's preaching and teaching to them about this, and then he's demonstrating it. There is no disconnect between the two. Jesus does not bifurcate human beings and put them into two parts, like the spiritual and the physical. It's all what it means to be a human being. The spiritual, the physical, the emotional, the psychological, it's all part of being human beings. So when it says that Jesus is preaching the kingdom and he's healing the sick, we're getting a picture of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Maybe you know this or maybe not, but to me it bears mentioning that the church for a long time has had this like competing duality. Well, should we just preach and tell them about Jesus or should we heal their personal practical needs? It's never one or the other when we see Jesus doing it. It's always both. So here's Jesus healing people everywhere. Okay, now, what I'm going to ask you to do is just take a little bit of a journey with me, kind of like inside my head, which will be an adventure. But bear with me, because I know this is going to frustrate some of you, but bear with me. I have in my mind this picture. Jesus is healing. The crowds are everywhere. It's very hard to get to him. In other words, it's very hard to get an appointment with Dr. Jesus. So here's Jesus in the house, and he's healing people, and they can't get their friend to him. So they take off the tiles of the roof, and they let him down, and here is the guy in front of him, after the ka-chunk, 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 and the ceiling, and the dust in your hair, and this guy is set down in front of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus looks at him. He said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, now, bear with me. If you're his friends, you're like, no, 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 no. We didn't bring him here for a sin problem. We brought him here because he's paralyzed. He needs to be healed of his paralysis. Next. No, it's really hard to get an appointment with you. Do not. We brought him here because of a physical need for healing. As if Jesus doesn't get that. Like, really, I'm still spitting dust from the ceiling tiles out of my mouth and he's lying on a mat, and you let him down in front of me as if I didn't know or see or understand 
that physical healing is why you brought him here. The first thing that Jesus says to this man is, your sins are forgiven. Now we begin to realize that what it means to be a human being is the comprehensive wholeness, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological. Romans 3.23 said it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, some of us in our lifetime will experience various physical illnesses. Some of us will. But all of us will experience the sin illness. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the pandemic is the sin illness. And in the presence of God, this is an essential matter to be addressed. So Jesus looks at this man who's a paralytic, and where he starts with him is in the forgiveness of sins. When he does this, he is declaring by his actions that this is the first core issue for us human beings. Okay, so let me back up for a minute. If there is a God, I'm using if as since, since there is a God, the first most significant question for any of us is, what is my standing in the presence of this God? What is the nature of my relationship in the presence of this God? There is a God, and if God is God, who we know him to be, the first question for anyone who's beginning to understand that God is really God is, what is my standing before this God in his presence? And Jesus, because that's the first question, says your standing is your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. That is your status in the presence of this God. You see, sin is this issue that is rooted, that we see it back in Genesis, of human beings saying, I'm going my own way. We're separating ourselves from God. So when we do that, we are exiting, saying that we are living within his reign and his kingdom. We're going to go live outside of it. And so when we go live outside of it, all this goodness, wholeness, healing, and shalom, we're going to be living in all the fallout and the pain and the implications of sin. The biblical depiction is that sin is the root problem and that our pain, our anxieties, even our physical illnesses are connected to this problem. Paul David Tripp, better known as Paul Tripp, has written a bunch of books. One of them that Elizabeth and I are enjoying is a daily devotional called New Morning Mercies. In one of his recent entries, he's speaking about David, King David's prayer in Psalm 51. He says, look carefully at David's prayer. This is not only a prayer of confession, it is also a cry for change. So in Psalm 51, David says to God, before you and you only have I sinned. In sin, my mother conceived me. This is not the kind of thing that is generally accepted in a secular culture around us. This is a biblical view. So what Paul Tripp goes on to say is, he admits that his problem is not environmental, but natal. He came into the world with it. He confesses that his problem is not external, but internal. It's a problem of the inward being. And while some of us will experience various physical illnesses, all of us 
will experience the pain and the fallout that comes with sin because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the guys have brought Jesus for physical healing and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And when he does, a firestorm breaks out. Why does the firestorm break out? Because the scribes, the Pharisees, know that only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he is, he is stating that he is God in the flesh. And the Pharisees are apoplectic about this. So just to explain this a bit, it is the position of the party that has been harmed to grant forgiveness, right? So if I hurt Bill and Fred says, you're forgiven from Bill, I'm like, well, that's Bill's forgiveness to give. The harmed party is the one who grants the forgiveness. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's not saying because of what you did to me last week. He's speaking of sin in the comprehensive existential sense. Meaning, I am the one who is offended by your sins. I am God, and thereby I am the one who has the right to grant you this comprehensive forgiveness. And the Pharisees are like, ah, whoa. They're really upset by it. I think you begin to see what's happening here. Okay, so then we get this fascinating, mysterious question. Verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? You see, what Jesus is getting at is, well, anybody could say your sins are forgiven. I mean, I could say that to all of you, and it lives in this abstract netherworld that nobody knows whether something really happened or not. So when Jesus says that, people can be like, meh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I don't know if I buy this guy, like, what is he saying? And that effectively what he says is, so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I will demonstrate it by telling the man, get up and walk. And when the man is physically healed, now everybody realizes this guy has the authority to forgive sins and he has the power to do physical healing. And then it says, everybody was filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So now the guy has this spiritual healing and he has this physical healing. That's the kind of healing we all need. But we live in a culture that spends all its energy on the physical. We're all spending all our time on what our bodies look like. And we're all trying to diet and we're all paying attention to BMI and we're going to the gym and we're trying to make our bodies look good and we're trying to be healthy. But there's so much other kind of illness that is connected to our experiences as human beings. Like, what keeps you up at night? For some, it may be a physical illness. But for the vast majority of us, when we can't sleep at night, it's because of a host of other problems, fears, anxieties, depressions, difficulties, concerns that are keeping us up at night. So if your body is healthy, but we're living with incredible and intense anxiety and depression, are we healthy? The Bible would say no. One part, one little sliver seems to be doing okay. And we live in a culture that all the pictures on the cover of the magazines at the checkout line say, look at the picture of health. This guy has ripped abs and his BMI is really low. He is the American picture of health. 
but his life is falling apart. His relationships are fracturing. He's living with an abject loneliness and he can't sleep. So maybe this is not the picture of hell or maybe it's only one little sliver. So we are so wired that when we're asking Jesus for healing, Jesus heal our bodies. Now I want you to know that I'm not minimizing the significance of our bodies, the experience we have that we live in our bodies, and the deep desire we have for healing of our bodies. I completely understand that and appreciate it. But how about this? Have you ever heard occasionally someone might be described as being short-sighted or an opinion, you might say, you know, that's a very short-sighted view. And I thought to myself, well, if you can have a short-sighted view, can you have a long-sighted view? I think you can, and I think Jesus has it. So we're looking at healing, and the guys, like us, have a short-sighted view. And they bring their friend in for physical healing. And they say, hey, he's here to be physically healed, Jesus. The sin thing is not why we brought him. But we who are short-sighted have brought the man into the presence of Jesus who is long-sighted, and Jesus first addresses the question of sin. Remember who we're talking about. Speak of beholding Jesus. The Bible says, through him all things were made. He's the creator of the cosmos. He was with God in the beginning when everything was created. He made you and me. He understands everything about the composition, composition of what it means to be a human being. Not only that, he has lived in sinless existence in heaven before he came into this world. So here we are saying we're asking for healing, short-sighted. We haven't seen what sinless existence looks like in the glory of heaven. We didn't create ourselves in all the mystery and beauty and complexity. So we're coming to Jesus asking for healing and like, do we know who we're dealing with here when we're asking for healing? He's the long-sighted one. He has seen the whole perspective of what it means to be a human being and he's seen all of heaven. We see none of that. And so he addresses the man's sin healing need first. Okay? So remember, this is Jesus. This is a man without idols, insecurities, or identity deficits. We've been talking about those three eyes throughout the series. So here's what we know. Physical illnesses are temporary, but the sin illness has the potential to be eternal, and Jesus is addressing it. He's addressing the sin illness problem, and yes, he will address the physical illness problem. But understand, right, every physical healing is temporary. So if somebody is healed, which we all pray for many people we've prayed for, we all have, right? If somebody is healed, a beautiful gift of healing can occur, but it's temporary. Because 100% of us are not going to be healed at some point in the way we think of it from a physical standpoint, right? 100% of us are going to experience the cessation of our body's capability to keep going. 100% of us are not going to be healed at some point in the journey. So much of the power here is recognizing that Jesus is offering to all who say yes to him 100% of us will receive the full healing 
of this fullness of life in the kingdom of God. So Jesus goes about healing all over the place. And often, if you've read the Gospels closely, the religious leaders get really upset with him because he's healing on the Sabbath. The first time you begin to encounter this, you think, Jesus, that's kind of a mystery. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? You're getting in trouble with these guys and it's causing a lot of problems. The more you read the Gospels, the more you start seeing that it seems to be almost always the Sabbath when he heals. It seems like it's the only day he healed. It certainly seems to me like his favorite day. And now you begin to connect sozo with shalom because the Sabbath is the day of God's wholeness. And so Jesus is healing people so frequently on the Sabbath because he wants them to connect the sense of wholeness with the fullness of God. Sometimes I just wonder, you know, I often, you've heard me say this, I just think if I was one of the disciples and Jesus is doing something, we're short-sighted, he's long-sighted, we've got three eyes, he has none of the three eyes, and you see Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and you're like, why do you do this? You keep getting us in trouble. You just wonder if he kind of winks at you. And says, <laughs> he's long-sighted. He's God in the flesh. He's healing on the Sabbath. In Israel... Having been a couple times now, one of the fun things about it is when the Sabbath comes along, people have this greeting and they say Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath peace, Sabbath peace, Sabbath wholeness, enter the fullness and the wholeness of God. So to be healed physically, yes, of course, we long for it for people, but that is a temporary healing. Jesus' healing is mysterious, is it not? When you read the Gospels, you paying close attention, we'll read, he heals some people, but apparently didn't heal all of them. And you would want to say, well, wait, Jesus, there's a bunch more guys here. The Pool of Bethesda, you remember the story? So there's a crippled man by the Pool of Bethesda, and it says, a whole bunch of people were lying by the pool. Jesus talks to this one guy. Why are you lying here? Because there's a legend that when the water stirs, you get into the water first, you get healed. So Jesus says, forget the pagan legends. I'm going to be your healer. And he heals the guy. But then you're like, well, wait, Jesus, there's a whole bunch of other guys here too. One of the challenges in our short-sighted experience as human beings is why does he heal some people but not others? We don't know this. This is part of our journey of faith. It's part of the narrow-sightedness of the position that we're in. When Jesus raised Lazarus, John chapter 11, Jesus goes and Lazarus has been dead for four days and Jesus raises him. It's important to note, he's not resurrected him, he's resuscitated him. Resurrection means you have been raised with the eternal body and eternal existence and you will never die. Resuscitation means you're back to life, but you're still going to die. Lazarus is still going to come to the end of his earthly life. In other words, Lazarus is healing is also temporary. Jesus, who has long-sightedness, brings this full picture of what it is to be whole as a human being. John Ortberg says, social science researchers say that we're the most worried culture that's ever lived. Life expectancy is more than doubled in the past century. We're able to cure more diseases than ever before. No group of human beings has ever been healthier, yet no group has ever been more worried about their health. We keep reading articles about how sick we are. In other words, he's playing on what is health? 
We are physically healthier than human beings have ever been in existence. But we're all in this challenge of the fallout of sin and its emotional, psychological, and physical pain that it brings into our lives. You note in Psalm 103, beautiful little psalm, it's like a long-sighted psalm. It says, praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. Look at the progression. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Both. Both. Forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. But some are wondering, but what about some who physically don't have their physical disease healed? The resurrection is the ultimate and full healing. You gotta be long-sighted to be able to grasp this. While 100% of us will not be healed one day because our physical bodies will come to the conclusion of their capacity, 100% of us who are in Christ will be completely healed in the resurrection of Christ. So some of you have heard me mention that my mom passed away in February and it was April when Elizabeth and I went up to her home and connected in with my sister and we were sorting things out in her house and trying to get her house ready to sell. And this, of course, is an interesting experience. If you've ever done it before, you start going through all kinds of things. You find boxes and all sorts of things. So we found boxes of pictures and, and letters and all that kind of stuff. I thought that I'd seen all the pictures but we found some boxes that had some pictures in it that of me when I was like little tiny shaver and Elizabeth had never seen them. She's like, oh, they're so cute. I want those pictures. You know, I'm the last of three. There are no pictures of the last of three kids. <laughs> the first kid gets the photo book and the memories and the journal. The second kid gets some pictures pasted crooked in the photo book. Third kid gets nothing. You're in the picture if you were kind of photobombed in the side because they wanted a picture of someone else. So we came across a few of these kinds of pictures. And then we were in a box of letters. So a little bit ironic in my own sense of how God's worked in my life. I had two godfathers growing up. They were both Episcopal ministers. So I find this letter, and on the back of it, it's been opened, old, like fading yellow, and it has a return address of one of my godfathers on it. So I open the note, and it was a note that he had written to my parents after his father had passed away. And the note said, Dear Jane and Murray, thank you so much for your condolences on the occasion of Dad's death. Dad has finally found the healing he so longed for. He's home and he's whole. So I read that and full circle, when I was growing up, I had no sense of the long-sighted view of healing. My godfather did. About a month after reading that note, my godfather's son called me. My godfather died a number of years ago. His remains were cremated, but they hadn't done a burial yet. My godfather's son called me and he said, David, we'd like to ask you if you'd be willing to do a burial service for dad. What I didn't know was, he also said, I've been connecting in with Hope Church for a long time now. I had no idea. 
So I read this note. About a month later, I get called. This burial service is coming up. Feels like a sacred privilege to be able to do it. Uncle Clark writes to my mom and dad, Dear Jane and Murray, thank you for your condolences on the occasion of dad's death. He's finally found the healing he so longed for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that in the mystery and in the questions that we have that come from our perspective, you are the healer, Jesus. And we thank you that your heart is for us. You know us in ways that we don't know ourselves. You are long-sighted. You see things that we don't see and can't comprehend. This is why we come in faith, Jesus. Here we are, your church. We're here in faith. We're here saying yes with all of our best expressions and understandings. We're here with questions, yes, because they're things we don't understand. We're here beholding you, the glorious healer. And we pray in your name. Amen.